Well, <clears throat> here we are now at the last night of this retreat and about to resume the rest of our lives tomorrow. And most often the questions that people have at this time are, um, how can I continue my spiritual practice in daily life? When I think about giving a talk that might be called spiritual practice in daily life, I think I'd like to make a typographical error and name it spiritual practice is daily life. It's only one letter that changes. Lots of times um, people confess, they, they, they say um, in an embarrassed way, I discover that in between retreats I don't have much time to practice. And I'm always a little amazed and dismayed because I think that somehow we haven't taught right. Because what I understand them to be saying when they say that is that they haven't got a lot of time to sit and to walk. I can't imagine that nobody has time to pay attention. That uh, this is really a practice of paying attention at all times, in all activities, at all rates of speed. This is the contemplative mode of this practice. This is the monastic mode of this practice. It's a practice of paying attention to everything. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. I actually want to talk about the sutta on the four foundations of mindfulness, which are the instructions for this practice. It's both a way of reviewing the instructions as we continue our practice in the rest of our lives, and also of trying to make the point again that the practice is just the same here as any place else. That particular sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness is one of the few technique suttas that the Buddha gave. It's one of the few discourses where he taught how to do a practice. For the most part, the discourses that the Buddha gave weren't how to practice. He just told people how things were. And they got it right away. The beginning discourses are really wonderful to read. They, they all kind of follow a certain form. They say, the Blessed One was in such and such a place during such and such a season, and so-and-so came to see him and paid homage and made respects and sat down. And then it would say that the Buddha then, the Blessed One, roused and encouraged and incited and instructed so-and-so in the law. And as he was instructing in so-and-so who was listening, arose the spotless, immaculate vision of Dhamma, just as they listened. And the way that they said classically in the text that someone realized liberation is, and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. Isn't that lovely? And it would happen to one person, or five people, or 80 people, or hundreds of people at a time. They all became arhats, fully realized beings, just like that. The Buddha said, this is the way it is, and they got it. (laughs) For all the rest of us, There are technique suttas, and the sutta, <laughs> and the sutta on the four foundations of mindfulness is the one on which this very practice of vipassana is based. So I'll review it for you, and it'll be familiar for you because that's what we've been doing all week. We started with the first domain of mindfulness. We started with paying attention to body sensations. We actually began the instructions by having people bring the attention to the breath and to the walking as a way of beginning. Really as a way of looking at body sensations because there really isn't any such thing as the breath, if you think about it. Is there such a thing as the breath? There are vibrations and pulsings and pullings. There are all of the various body sensations that make up the breath, but there isn't any one such thing as the breath. Neither is there such a thing as a lifting or a moving or a placing. 
But all of the myriad sensations that go into each of those things, we, that's a name that we give to a very complex variety of body sensations. And even as we began our practice this time or for the very first time, when one closes one's eyes for the first five minutes, there's a tremendous amount of dharma that you can learn in the first five minutes. One sits down, closes one's eyes, and sees that actually there's a lot more going on than one thought. (laughs) Just even in the range of body sensations. Isn't that true? Just as soon as you close your eyes, there's twitchings and pulsings and tensings that you weren't aware of. stiff here and tight there and all kinds of things going on. If you pay attention just for five minutes, one finds some very fundamental dharma. Things change. Nothing stays comfortable. It all comes and goes quite impersonally according to conditions, but not by anything that you do or think you do. Comes and goes quite by itself, quite impersonally. And you learn some really other fundamental, important dharma. All in the first five minutes, you learn that pleasant sensations lead to the desire that they stay, and unpleasant sensations lead to the hope that they go away. And both the desire that they stay and the hope that they go away both amount to tension in the mind, and both of them are uncomfortable. So in the first five minutes, you learn about the cause of suffering, wanting things otherwise. Tremendous amount of truth just to be learned by closing your eyes for five minutes and paying attention to body sensations. It's an important kind of parenthetical aside at this point to talk about why if all of the myriad body sensations are important. Why on earth did we spend so much time saying, bring the attention back to the breath? Especially as people come and say, I have a lot of trouble staying with the breath. If I am now saying that the breath is one of all kinds of body sensations, why does the instruction seem to dwell so much on breath? It isn't a breath practice. We're not doing this to become good breathers or good walkers or even good meditators. We're doing it to become clear about what's true. So why do we talk about the breath so much? It's a really good object to use, to begin with, even to end with, but certainly to begin with. It's always there. We're all breathing. It's by and large neutral. If you haven't got any problems with your breathing apparatus, it's a relatively neutral thing to pay attention to. It's uncomplicated, rather plain. For that reason, as we begin to focus on it and pay attention to it in practice, it allows the mind to become somewhat concentrated and calm as well. It's changing all the time, but it's rather steady and it's changing. So it's a good beginning tool for focusing and calming the attention, just as walking is. It's plain, it's uncomplicated, you don't have problems with walking, then it's not a conflictual activity to be doing. It's repetitive. It's fairly neutral. So it has the possibility of being calming. And both walking and breathing have the possibility of not only calming, but allowing insight to arise. Some people do their entire practice just by paying attention to the breath. Everything that's true about everything is true about breath. It's impermanent. It arises and passes away. There's no point of satisfactoriness in it. When you think about it, if you didn't breathe, you'd become uncomfortable. So then you take a breath in, big breath in, comfortable. But if you hold it, it's not comfortable anymore. You have to breathe out. All the time, shifting, shifting. Uncomfortableness is continually arising. And it comes and goes just on its own. We don't have to think, now I'll take a breath, now I'll let the breath out. It takes care of itself. It comes and goes. It's quite impersonal. 
Sometimes people worry a lot. I notice it in interviews about not feeling in touch with the breath, or not being able to find their breath, or work with the breath. It's really important to remember that the breath is one thing to pay attention to. We could pay attention to any number of other things. could pay attention to any other body sensations. They all come and go. They're all unsatisfactory. They're all impersonal. Or we could pay attention to a whole other domain of mindfulness. I should say something about how to pay attention to physical sensations in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in the world, not here. Here we've paid attention in this quite microscopic way, just in slow walking and in paying attention to the breath and other body sensations. But in life, outside of here, we pay attention to the body. Ought to be paying attention to the body, being alert to what's happening with it, Sometimes I think we're not. If you pay attention to uh, the um, advertising on television, do you remember for a while there was an Alka-Seltzer commercial where someone clearly has not paid attention to body sensations and uh, is looking very dreary, rummaging through the medicine cabinet looking for Alka-Seltzer and saying, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. Do you remember that? that's clearly not paying attention to body sensations. Or you meet somebody and they're, they're sick and you say, well, how come you got sick? And they say, well, I let myself get run down. Well, clearly they weren't paying attention to body sensations. They mean they didn't sleep right or eat right or take care of themselves. Paying attention to body sensations. Someone once asked a particular Zen teacher the definition of enlightenment and they said, eat when hungry, sleep when tired. <laughs> it means paying attention to body sensations. Second domain of mindfulness in that sutta on the four foundations of mindfulness is mindfulness of feelings. And feelings in this case doesn't mean feelings as in you hurt my feelings or what are your feelings about that? There are only three feelings in this particular lexicon. They're the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. And every moment of experience is accompanied by one of those feelings. And if liberation, if freedom, is the balanced recognition of every moment, or indeed the ability to be fully present in every moment, then the non-recognition of feeling tone is what prevents us from being fully in the moment. The non-recognition of feeling tone. If we don't recognize the feeling tone, then what will happen is unbeknownst to us, we'll cling on to the experience, or we'll push it away, or we'll fall asleep. We'll space it out. Knowing the quality of the experience allows us to be present for it. It doesn't make the experience anything other than it is. Pleasant experiences don't become unpleasant experiences. At one point, early in my spiritual practice, I used to think that one of the things that would happen to me if I practiced enough is that all experiences would get to be the same, kind of flatten it all out. I'd get to be a zombie in my affect. That's not that at all. Unpleasant things remain unpleasant. I remember one time discovering that in a quite a mundane way. I was feeling very mindful, and I picked up an apple at tea time, and I was looking forward to it. And I had somehow the misconstruction that if I was being very mindful and very present, that everything would be lovely. And I took a bite of the apple, and it was a very bad-tasting apple. And I knew it. It was too dry and not ripe and a little bitter, and unpleasant is unpleasant. The great important piece, major dharma, is that you don't have to like what's happening in order to stay there for it. You don't have to like every moment to stay there. You don't have to like 
what's going on in order to be contented. That's such major dharma. We think we do. We've grown up to think we do. Actually, that's the major piece of good news of spiritual practice. Peace is possible in all circumstances. I'm sure you recognize that it's the third noble truth. Peace is possible. Life is difficult, but peace is possible. Paul, in a letter to the Philippians written from prison, reassured them that he was all right, and he said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. I go right from Paul to my grandmother. That's really from the sublime to the mundane. My grandmother was the principal person in raising me. I lived with my mother and my father and my grandmother. And I was an only child and an only grandchild, and she was totally devoted to me. And both my parents worked, so she spent, I spent most of my growing up with her at least in the daytime. And she was totally devoted to my well-being, took very good care of me. And certainly if I had, had anything that she could have fixed, she would have done it if I were cold or hungry or sick. She was also a um, very wise woman, having had a very difficult life and lived through a war in Europe and lived through a lot of poverty and she was very sensible and she knew what was true about life and on those occasions when I was unhappy as all children are from time to time and I'd complain and I'd say but I'm not happy and she would say using Talmudic style language although she was not a Talmudic scholar uh, where is it written that you're supposed to be happy all the time I really am grateful to her as being actually a very important first early piece of Dharma teaching for me I had a friend Bill who died some years ago he was um, in his early 40s He had a wife and two children. He died of a disease that wasn't treatable, but he had enough time to reflect on his life and his disease as he was dying. He uh, wrote a letter to the people who knew him talking about his impending death and talking about his life. And talking about his life, he said, I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. And for a while, I thought, I, I didn't understand it right. For a while, I thought to myself, gosh, that's terrific. Bill had exactly the right wife and exactly the right children and exactly the right job. How lucky Bill was to have all the exactly rights. And then I realized that I had misunderstood. Nobody has exactly right. What Bill had was not wanting other. Not wanting other is quite apart from having it exactly right. So when Jack mentioned the other night the uh, first patriarch of Berkeley, Bill is the first patriarch of Berkeley. You remember the third patriarch of Zen who said, the great way is difficult for those who have no preferences. The third patriarch of Zen I've always felt is a little remote from me, but Bill in Berkeley I knew. So I know it's possible. Not wanting is possible. Not wanting other is possible. Paying attention to feeling tone has the potential of revealing the same truth as paying attention to anything else. It's just like everything else. They come and go. Because they come and go, there's no satisfactoriness. And they're quite impersonal. They come and grow according to conditions, empty of any substance. Can watch feeling tone here and feeling tone anywhere. Can watch liking and not liking as your whole practice in life. Alarm clock rings in the morning, unpleasant feeling. 
You get out of bed, you get in the shower, there's hot water that morning. Good, pleasant feeling. You come out, you get dressed, you can't find your wristwatch. Unpleasant feeling. But there's a smell of coffee. Pleasant feeling. And then you get out on the freeway and it's too crowded. Unpleasant feeling. But then the traffic opens up. Pleasant feeling. But then you come to the toll booth and you forgot your ticket book. Unpleasant feeling. If you just did mindfulness of feeling tone, we would see that all day, up, down, up, down, up, down. It's a wonder we make it through a day. And it's, it's no wonder that we're tired at night. We are buffeted around by pleasant and unpleasant ple- and, and trying to fix it all the time so it's all the time okay. Third category of domains of mindfulness mindfulness of mind states. Let's do an experiment. Uh, You don't have to sit in any particular way, but close your eyes and I'll tell you some mind states. And I won't do them really slowly, so I won't wait for you to conjure up that whole mind state. But I'd like you to remember how this mind state feels. They each have a particular feeling about them. Even if you haven't got time to feel them, Remember how they feel. Bored. Interested. Irritated. Calm. Frustrated. Relieved. Joyful. Sad. Distracted, concentrated, greedy, generous, frightened, loving. Now you can open your eyes. Do you remember that they all have a certain feeling? The mind feels a certain way. And with them, most of them, the body feels a certain way. Feelings like calm have a very mild and gentle feeling, so we tend not to notice them so much. But they're feelings. Mind states are just as valid as breath or body sensation or feeling tone or anything else to pay attention to as objects of attention. And just like everything else, they change. They don't stay satisfactory. They're quite impersonal. They come and go. Actually, they often vanish in a flash. Sometimes I think people don't notice mind states unless they're huge, dramatic mind states. People will come to an interview sometimes and say, not much is happening. My friend Anna told me a story once about feeling in her practice that not much was happening. She had some new mind state, but she couldn't quite figure out what it was. Said she figured and she figured and she figured, and finally she recognized the mind state. It was calm. says a lot for us that we're not used to calm as a mind state. Also, calm is a quiet mind state. I think we tend to just not notice mind states of peacefulness or tranquility or ease or calm. We're waiting for the big, dramatic mind states. Those are mind states. We always have a mind state. If you look, we always have a mind state. Sometimes it's really quite calm, so it's not a prominent and dramatic, but there's a mind state. You could do your entire practice on mindfulness of mind states. They keep on changing. People will come to interviews and say, nothing is happening, can't find my breath, but I'm full of joy. Somehow as if they're doing it wrong because the breath isn't prominent, but joy is. When we are filled with joy, That's the object of attention. Feel joy. Joy in the mind is a wonderful feeling. And in the body. 
You all know that. Everybody here's had joy. We kind of forget that that is as valid an object of attention as breath or lifting. Everything is an object of attention. In our life, I think, apart from here, it's so important to have some clarity of what mind state is present and to try to face it fully. I think that just the awareness of the mind state, just knowing what's going on, gives us some confidence and ability that they're manageable, that they're workable, that they are. Of course they are. They're just mind states. We spend a lot of time and a lot of energy avoiding different kinds of feelings in the sense of emotions, avoiding anger because it'll be too overwhelming, or avoiding grief because we feel we'll drown in it and it'll be never-ending. We're ducking, kind of, hoping that one or another unpleasant mind state won't overtake us. Sometimes when I work with people in a psychotherapy setting and I see that they are avoiding something, I say to them, don't duck, stay there. Don't duck, face it squarely. You could do it, it's just what it is, it's a mind state. If you look at it squarely, it becomes something else. Moods change. They're not any more substantial than anything else. Sometimes they vanish just in a moment. I was trying to think of uh, examples that I could tell you that would really be quite mundane. Do you ever be having kind of a blue day and all of a sudden the telephone rings and you pick it up? It's a friend you haven't heard from in a long time. And all of a sudden you get happy. All of a sudden, mind change. Or you be in a great mood and you come home and you open your mailbox and you take out a letter and it says Department of the Treasury, Internal (laughs) Revenue. And all of a sudden the mood shifts radically. And you really let go of mind states and they vanish. It's a totally banal one. I was on my way with my husband to a Greek restaurant recently where I really enjoy the food there. I was looking forward to it. It had been a long day working. Driving over, and I said something. I don't know what I said, but I could tell immediately that he had been offended. I said, what's the matter? Nothing. Now I see something's the matter. Well, you hurt my feelings, and you said this and this, and I took it that way, and it reminded me of the time that you did this and this. And, and, as, and by this time we're at the restaurant, and I'm, I'm feeling very self-righteous, and, because actually I was clean. Sometimes I'm not, but on that occasion... <laughs> On that occasion, I was actually clean. And I felt self-righteous, and I felt aggrieved, and I started to get angry, and I thought, it's not fair, and there he is, the same old story. A hundred years, he'll still be saying the same story. (laughs) And by this time, we're sitting down in the restaurant, and I've got the menu in front of me, and I'm about to make my rebuttal. And I realize at that moment, and I was really feeling... I realized I could either defend my honor, meanwhile missing my dinner, (laughs) or I could let it go. And I said, I'm sorry your feelings were hurt. And I ordered what I wanted to eat. And in that moment that I did it, my whole aggrieved went away, everything went away, my whole story went away. When I decided I wasn't going to follow it through and do it, the whole mood that was part of it just vanished. I actually thought about it about two minutes later, I went back to think about it, and it was really gone. They vanish moods. They don't just even go slowly. They vanish. They just disappear. I wore my uh, carpe diem sweatshirt today, too. This is one of my, part of my Dharma wardrobe. I'm collecting things that say things that I think are dharmically wise. This is the Latin equivalent of be here now. <laughs> My friend Elizabeth wears a gold um, necklace uh, 
with uh, carpe diem written into it. She got it when she recovered from breast cancer about eight years ago. And she really seems quite recovered. But she said at that point she radically changed in her appreciation of life because she realized how crucial every day is and how she really, it catapulted her into the moment. Haven't got a moment to lose. When, uh, when, when we know somebody has a grievous illness, people tend to say his days are numbered. All of our days are numbered. We just don't know the number. And we, we count on a very big number, but they're all numbered. <laughs> And besides, we only have nows. Sometimes I think to myself, when I'm in the middle of some activity, and whatever it is, and I am not fully there for it, I think to myself, what if this was the last time I get to do this? And then I do it differently. The last domain of the four domains of mindfulness is mindfulness of mind objects, of the dharma, of what's true. The first three categories were physical sensations and feelings and mind states. I used to think that the fourth domain was everything not mentioned above. But in fact, everything has been mentioned above. There isn't anything but mind sensations and physical sensations, and feeling tones. There are thoughts, of course, but thoughts are really included in certain ways in those categories. The cognition, this is a long breath or this is a short breath, that's a thought. Or planning or reminiscing thoughts really fit in the category of mind, distracted mind, mindful of distractions. Really, this category of mindfulness of the truth, mindfulness of the Dharma, are particular thoughts that have to do with realizations, perceptions of how things are. And there are three categories that I'd like to talk about, three categories of perceptions. First category of perceptions are the thoughts. This is a hindrance. Have a thought, this is a hindrance. Remember all the hindrances? John talked about them the other night. You've certainly seen them firsthand, I'm sure, in any infinite number of permutations and combinations throughout the week. There's a way of knowing the difficult mind states when they arise, anger, restlessness, lust, boredom, sleepiness, doubt. We know them all as they arise, as that state mind of doubt, mind with anger. And there's another way of perceiving it. It's the same mind state, but kind of understanding it as a hindrance. This is a hindrance that's come and gone. Or this is a multiple hindrance. I've come to believe that we never actually have one hindrance alone. (laughs) That, in fact, whenever anything arises, something else arises with it either anger that we have it, if it isn't anger and irritation, or doubt that we can do this practice if it's it's something other than doubt. They come in packages. Indeed, there are multiple hindrance attacks where you have all five of them at one time. I thought in honor of the fact that uh, I'm here in Barrie, I would tell you about a monumental uh, hindrance attack that I had in this very room on uh, Halloween a number of years ago. I even tell you that I had it on the second Zabutan from the back in that very last row (laughs) over there. I know exactly where I was. And it was a multiple hindrance attack. Everything happened. And this is how it happened. I was in the best mood. Practice was going wonderfully. I was delighted with myself in the practice. I was feeling great. My body was feeling, everything was feeling great. 
And it was Halloween. And I came into the room in the evening after a walking period. And after the walking period, when I came in, during the time that everybody had been out walking, the staff had been in and they'd put jack-o'-lanterns all around the room. And they were beautiful. And they'd gone to great pains to carve them wonderfully. And it, I was just overwhelmed with joy at how beautiful it all was. And I felt terrific. And I approached my Zafu. And then I discovered to my delight that not only had they made the jack-o'-lanterns, but they had put candy on everybody's Zafu. And I was just so delighted. Everybody got a piece of candy. And then I got to my Zafu, and I looked down, and I saw that I got grape bubble gum. <laughs> And I looked around, and other people had better stuff. <laughs> I don't like that grape bubble gum. <laughs> so I was a little disappointed, a little irritation. In a million years, I would never switch with anyone, but... But I had a little bit of anger and not liking. But okay, I said to myself, you don't need that candy anyway. Sugar is not good for you. It muddles up your mind. Make the best of it. I sit down. And all of a sudden, I have a lust. I have a desire. I see the Zafu in front of me. And it's my friend Roger Zafu, and he's not back yet. And I think to myself, I'll give my bubble gum to Roger. <laughs> I won't take his, I'll just give it, then Roger will come in, he'll be so delighted, he'll have two things, he'll feel happy. I give him the bubble gum, I don't think I give him the bubble gum. Immediately that I give him the bubble gum, I become totally distraught. <laughs> I myself, that was an idiotic thing to do, giving him the bubble gum. He'll come in, he won't know why he's got two, he'll think he's got a secret admirer, it will upset him. How could you have done such a thing, I say to myself. You, who are always admonishing people, don't write notes, don't even look people in the eye, don't make contact, you just gave Roger a bubble gum. So, so far, you see, now I have, I have uh, not liking, I have lust, I have restlessness and fretting, I have tremendous doubt, what kind of a yogi are you? You're supposed to be a teacher, look what you did. By that time, my mind is so totally fatigued that I have everything. I have total torpor. The whole mind falls over in a heap. <laughs> so I sat down and I said to myself, you just had a multiple hindrance attack. That's all that was. It was just a multiple hindrance attack. Forget about it. Relax, take a breath, smile, look at the pumpkins. And it's gone. That's all it is. It's just a multiple hindrance attack. That's one kind of domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of hindrance. Another one is mindfulness of factors of enlightenment. All of a sudden, joy. You have tremendous joy, tranquility, calm. You say to yourself, this is it, home free. No, it's not. It's a conditioned state, it changes just like everything. It's great, but it's no big deal. When one of those mind states arises, and they're lovely, you appreciate it, you feel it, you experience this is joy in the mind, this is joy in the body, this is wonderful. And you just with it and with it and with it, and you say to yourself, this is a factor of enlightenment. Even enjoy that, that's great. I'm cultivating factors of enlightenment. But it's no big deal. I need six others, and I need them all to be balanced anyway. So it's no big deal. This is a factor of enlightenment. It keeps the mind balanced. You can be with it then in a balanced way. The being able to say this is a hindrance or this is a factor of enlightenment is a way of allowing you to be with the feeling more fully. It's not to finish the feeling or turn it off or to get rid of it. It's really to allow you to be with it in the fullest way. So the last category of thoughts in this particular thoughts, perceptions, this is, is the thought, this is an insight. This is, after all, insight meditation. 
This is a moment of clarity about what's true. This is really what this retreat is about. In our life as well, there are moments where we say, I got it, this is the way it is, things pass. First insight is an insight about impermanence. All of a sudden, you really grok it. You really get it that things pass. All of these insights have a terrifying aspect and a liberating aspect. There are times when a, an insight arises and you see it clearly, and it's totally terrifying. Everything is passing away, just vanishing as quickly as it arises. Yesterday I was a child. I remember it clearly. Today I'm a grandmother. I'm convinced that before I turn around I'm going to be 80 years old and it's all going to be over. And there are moments when it absolutely feels like it's a roller coaster, just whizzing by. That's the terrifying aspect of seeing impermanence. The liberating aspect is it really catapults you into the moment. You really get it. It is whizzing by. I have only this moment. I had better be here now. I have another dharmic sweatshirt that says, life is not a dress rehearsal. Live it fully now. Whatever your path is, do that fully. Sometimes there are insights about dukkha, about suffering, about unsatisfactoriness. Because things change, nothing can be permanently satisfying. Life is really continual loss and us continually trying to adjust to it. It's a period of time in my life and in my practice when the dukkha awareness was so strong there was nothing that I could look at that wasn't totally sad. It was as if, do you remember in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy puts on green glasses and everything looks green? It was as if I had put on a pair of dukkha glasses and everything looked sad. I was telling this to a friend of mine once about how the world appeared to me at that time and she said, creation is groaning. It was a beautiful phrase because that's exactly how it looked to me. Went to Hawaii with my husband on a vacation. I was in a perfectly lovely hotel, in the most beautiful place, having a wonderful dinner, looking through the palms at the sunset, absolutely crying at how painfully sad it was that another day had ended, that the sun was setting was unbearably painful. It passed that stage, but in that time, it's totally terrifying because you don't imagine that you'll ever see another way that that vision and awareness of dukkha will not condition a total aversion to life experience. Because you think, how can I go anyplace? How can I do anything? It's all too sad. The liberating aspect of that awareness is that you really get to understand that that's the way the human condition is. The human condition is loss. We haven't done it wrong that we have grief and loss. Everything ages and fades and dies. When we can relax about it, when we can really face that, when we don't duck, then the lens widens and we can see that everything is also getting born all the time too. And we're able to see beauty and freshness and newness. And the last of the insights is the insight about selflessness or emptiness. get a perspective in practice here. We get a perspective on our own experience as we watch it day after day, moment after moment. We begin to see in a quite direct way that it's just stuff happening. It isn't happening by anyone or to anyone. It's just experience arising and passing away. Sometimes it might happen. To, it happens to people in different ways, eating or walking or breathing watching the experience very closely, noticing, knowing very carefully what's happening, suddenly one has the awareness, it's a machine. It's a computer. 
It's an amazing and complicated computer, but it's a computer. I think to myself sometimes it's too bad it didn't come with an operating manual. (laughs) It's an infinite computer. The terrifying aspect of that awareness is that when we discover that the I that we have so identified with isn't there, that's for a while alarming. We've so identified with that I. There's a sense of I. A thought arises and we have a feeling that there's a thinker who thought it. Or a feeling arises. We have the sense that there's someone who felt that. Someone who felt that. Someone who thought that. If you watch very closely, you see that there's no one there. I think to myself, it's a trick done by mirrors. The liberating aspect of seeing that is you get to see that there's no one to protect. We spend a whole life using so much energy protecting that I that isn't there. There's nothing to worry about. There's no one who dies. I always remember at this point the line from Wu Wei Wu, the Chinese philosopher, who said, if there's anyone at home to suffer, they will. (laughs) When you know that there's no one there, you're really free. So this is really why we do this practice. Those are the four domains of mindfulness. We don't do it to achieve any particular mind state, they change. We don't do it to become good sitters or good walkers or even good meditators. We do it to know what's true, to open really fully to all our experience and to realize freedom. When we see what's true, fear disappears. My goal for myself, the reason I practice is I want to be a fearless old woman. (laughs) The goal of this practice, the Buddha said, is the unshakable deliverance of the heart. I think I'd like to end by reading you two things that the Buddha said. The first was at the time that he was old and near to dying, when he had been quite feeble, on one particular occasion, he felt better and he roused from where, raised himself up from where he was lying down. And Ananda, who had been his lifelong attendant, was so delighted that he was up again and There was excitement that he would be able to teach again. And the Buddha said, however, disciples, it may be that after my passing away, you might think gone is the doctrine of our master. We have no master anymore. You should not think thus. For the law, the Dhamma, which I have taught you, will after my death be your teacher. Let the law be your island. Let the law be your refuge. Look for no other refuge. Therefore, disciples, the doctrines I have taught you, you should use well, well preserve, well guard for the welfare of the many as a consolation to the world and for the happiness of all beings. And the last thing I want to read with a little bit of poetic license, I'm going to change the last two lines, is a little piece from the Metta Sutta. And I decided to do that first because I like to read this, and also because all week we've talked about practicing vipassana in the spirit of metta. And I want to tell you that I don't think it's possible to practice vipassana not in the spirit of metta. That the spirit of metta is open-heartedness, impartial open-heartedness in classical metta practice, impartial open-heartedness towards all beings. I think that vipassana is the calm, open, impartial open-heartedness to all aspects of our experience. 
So the techniques are different, they sound different, but the sense of the heart in both practices is the same. So I'll read you a little piece of the Metta Sutta. It's longer than this. And I'm going to add two lines at the end that are my poetic license. The Buddha didn't say all of this. May all beings be happy, whatever their living nature. Whether weak or strong, omitting none, whether long or large, medium size or short, fine or coarse, those that can be seen and those that cannot, those that are near and those that are far away, those that have been born and those that are yet to be. May all beings be happy. Let none deceive another nor despise anyone on any grounds, nor with anger or thoughts of hate should beings ever wish one another harm. Just as a mother will give her life to protect her only child, just so should we, towards all beings, boundlessly open our hearts with loving kindness to all beings, should we boundlessly open our hearts with loving kindness towards each experience, should we boundlessly open our hearts with loving kindness towards each moment, should we boundlessly open our hearts. May all beings be happy. Let's sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 5, 1991. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.